When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Uh, Quite a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. Firstly, the England efforts in New Zealand and also some... T20 going on around the world as well with Australia beating Pakistan 3-0 well it would have been 3-0 if they hadn't had a rain affected match in the middle there and India Bangladesh that was a a, a tussle as well which India came out on top in in the end in the second half of this show we're actually going to completely change tack and look at diversity in England and minorities and how we can maybe engage the minorities, particularly the South Asians and the Caribbean community in English cricket better. I've got two special guests who are real experts in that field. But first we should just look at New Zealand and England's odyssey around with their T20 series in the bag in the end, just about. It was a fantastic end and I suppose, Simon, you know, New Zealand must be thinking, what have they done wrong, really, with the the super over lost in the World Cup final, the super over lost in this last match, the decider, and losing to England at rugby as well. Well, Tim Southey said, let's hope if we get another super over against England sometime in the future, it's it's third time lucky. And there's always a chance, of course, they might meet in the T20 World Cup in Australia in about 11 months' time. It was a really strange day in Auckland, actually, because I think we all turned up expecting there to be no play it rained overnight it rained very heavily that morning it rained during the hours of play and I thought we're not going to play here but somehow the weather cleared and somehow the umpires decided we had time for 11 overs per side and I mean even that was dramatic New Zealand scoring 146 in their 11 overs it's such a strange ground Eden Park it's a rugby ground the the straight boundaries are, are really short so it's so tough for bowlers and for fielding captains. England managed to just somehow or other pull off the tie again, thanks to Chris Jordan this time. He came in with 13 needed, hit his first ball over square cover for six and scrambled a two and then hit the last ball of the match for four to level things up and then bowled superbly 
in the Super Over. England batted well, got 17, and Jordan came out and defended it. No trouble at all, as it turned out, although he was indebted to an absolutely sensational catch by Owen Morgan running around at, at extra cover, getting a wicket, which was also a dot ball, obviously, and just set New Zealand back because they couldn't afford to lose another wicket. So it, was, it, actually, it actually felt like a fitting end to what was a really interesting series, a tight tussle between the, the two sides, uh, New Zealand winning two before that and England winning two. It was, it was slightly unsatisfactory, and then it was only 11 overs per side. But in, in a way, it was, I think it was, the tie really made it, and you had the super over it, sort of just added a, a bit, bit of luster right at the end of the series, really, especially considering what happened at Lord's. It just shows what is possible as well, isn't it, now? You know, not that long ago, we thought, I don't know, 12, 15 off and over to, to win a match was, was pretty impossible. But now we're talking 12 off three balls or 13 to win off three balls is, is possible. And Chris Jordan, who is, I suppose, in a way, England's slightly forgotten man. His, his star has, has been sort of superseded by others, like his mate Joffre Archer, for instance. And yet he's still putting in great, great performances under massive pressure, not only with the ball, but with, with the bat. He, he made a, a few, about 30-odd in, in the previous game as well, and nearly got England over the line. And I, I, I mean, just to have the ability and the self-confidence to come in with 13 required and still believe you can do it and almost achieve it, it, it is a, a fantastic testament to, to somebody who's been around yeah, a, f- a fair time now and, and is still, uh, you know, uh, got the passion and the drive and the skill to perform at, at this level. Not just his batting, his bowling, also his fielding as well. He's absolutely brilliant in the field. He's a tremendous all-round cricketer. He's having a good year in T20. He was instrumental in England's victory in the Caribbean before the the World Cup. He was superb out there with the ball as well. And in this competition, in this five-match series, as as you say, he had a a good all-round time bat and ball. It's so tough for the bowlers. I mean, batsmen coming at them, especially when he got 11 overs and bowling the super over as well. Okay, he had the 17 to defend. But he, his, his bowling was exemplary. It, it really was. He, he found that length, that, that very full Yorker length, and New Zealand couldn't deal with him. I mean, he's, he, you know, a lot of the focus in this series has been on England's young players and some of the young bowlers like uh, like Mahmood and, and Pat Brown. Um, but actually, it's Jordan, in a way, who's, who stood out, with a bit of help from Sam Curran as well. Sam Curran has had a, a you know, very steady series with the ball. Tom Curran... Uh, continues to make progress as well uh, with the ball for England with his you know, with his variations. And if you look at the T20 World Cup in a year's time, England looked to have you know, real competition uh, for places and uh, not just in, in the bowling, the batting as well. Lots of top order options, and you, you sort of wonder where Joe Root fits into this England T20 side. I mean. <laughs> You know, does he get in? Uh, it would be interesting to see what happens the next time England play a T20 match when the big guns presumably will be back. They they were left out here. Most of the big players rested for the for the Test series. But you know, when when if they are available, if they do play, of course they do have a, a you know a really tough schedule coming up. As they've got two Test matches here and then four Test matches in South Africa, they might rest some of the players in the white ball cricket in, in South Africa as well. Who knows? But you know, does Joe Root get back in the England T20 side? Well, I think he does, you know, and I think there's a reason for that. Uh, and I've been watching the Australia-Pakistan series and before that Australia-Sri Lanka, all in Australia, of course, and the T20 World Cup is in Australia. And I think the noticeable facet of that 
two series is that the back of the length short ball, and I say back of the length, not not really bouncers, but just hitting hard length uh, and getting the ball at least waist high and maybe even a bit higher at high pace has been the most effective weapon against, especially against Asian batsmen, but particularly with Australia having slightly bigger grounds than some of the teams are used to. I mean, if you look at that uh, that last match in New Zealand, the match in Auckland, where it's a strange-shaped ground, but the ball was just sailing for six re- repetitively. In fact, I, I think I counted there were 27 sixes in the 22 overs, 11, aside, 11 overs aside, that, that were played uh, before the super over. So you're getting at least a six per over, and... In Australia, that isn't so easy because of the deep square boundaries. So quite a lot of the Sri Lankans and Pakistanis were out trying to pull the ball that had been directed at high pace into the kind of rib area where you only have... You can't really hit those balls down the ground where the boundaries are a bit shorter. So you've got to go either for the the pull, the hook, or perhaps the uppercut. And a lot of the Sri Lankans and Pakistanis, their innings were terminated because of attempting those shots, didn't quite have the power, didn't have the range. So what I'm saying is that someone like Root, who can work the ball into gaps and pick up twos, would, I think, be very valuable, particularly on Australian pitches. They're fantastic pitches to bat on, but to hit the ball over the rope, square of the wicket, requires a lot of strength and, in a way, some luck as well. Aaron Finch certainly has a capability of doing it, and he, he hits enormous sixes. But someone like Steve Smith, for instance, who, who played a, a brilliant knock in the second match against Pakistan, got an 80-not out, and he just worked it around. I mean, he obviously hit some fours, and he's still, believe it or unbelievably, working on his game to try and improve his short-form game. So he's been working on slicing the ball over the offside and square the wickets. And he actually created... He he, he played one uppercut uh, where the ball was banged in short, sort of around the leg stump, and he made room outside leg and actually uppercut it over short, fine leg off a sort of inside edge, uh, which was an extraordinary shot, completely beyond description. So I think in Australia, in the T20 World Cup, a player like Root, who can manipulate the ball and doesn't rely only on power, might be very valuable. What about David Milan? How does he fit in to playing on Australian? Well, pitches? good. He, he's he's good, isn't he? Uh, he's mm. it's been said actually by Ed Smith and others that he's better on the the bouncier pitches. He has that back foot game. He has a, a sort of swivel pull shot, which kind of helps the ball around behind the square he's not so often trying to you know the Ben Stokes pull shot is is sort of hitting it over over deep mid wicket but I think actually Milan is quite nimble and gets inside the line and can sort of help it over fine legs so uh, uh, Owen Morgan is also good at that shot so that might be a shot which they'll work on a lot but I also think there'll be a big emphasis on pace in the world T20 and you need bowlers who are going to hit High speeds up, you know, towards ninety miles an hour. Kane Richardson was very consistently effective. Obviously, Pat Cummins was very good at doing that. Mitchell Stark, we we know about. Australia are going to come. Another one is Billy Stanley. You know, Australia are going to come in that tournament with tall, aggressive, 
fast bowlers. And so I think the teams that are going to succeed in that tournament will be the others who have that kind of, uh, you know, armoury. England will have a bit of that, of course, won't they, with Joffre Archer coming back into their side. Uh, it depends who's fit among the fast bowlers, p- possibly Mark Wood. Um, Ollie Stone, I, I wonder, you know, Ollie maybe Stone. somebody actually could be, could be valuable in that area. Yeah, although, I mean, obviously his fitness um, has been an issue. Um, it's hard to know, isn't it? I mean, it's still a long way to go. But, I mean, England looked to be uh, you know, building t- towards, uh, you know, a very powerful side in, in T20 cricket as well as, you know, being obviously very good in, in 50-over cricket as well. Milan's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, he played uh, you know, stunning innings in... Napier on on Friday, the the fastest hundred ever by an England player in T Twenty international cricket. Admittedly, that the square boundaries were were short, and he he plays an interesting way because he he plays very conservatively to start with, uh, you know, twelve off twelve that sort of thing, just nudging the ball around, and that, then he gets going. His record is excellent, striking it over a hundred and fifty in in nine matches. He scored six half centuries, and now he's got you know a hundred an international. Uh, T20 hundred as well to to go with that. He's sort of, he's making a very good case uh, not to be left out. That's why there's so much competition around. And that and, and uh, the other thing as well is someone like Tom Banton who looks a really exciting talent. I mean, he there were glimpses of him really in this series. Uh, he, he's just turning 21. Sort of glimpses of him more than more than anything. It was others who really sort of caught the eye. You know, Bairstow in the final game, for example, and uh, Vince in the first game, and Milan generally throughout the competition and, and Morgan as well uh, of course batted very well uh, so there's, there's something about Banton he's, he's, he's one definitely to keep an eye on and he keeps wicket of course as well yeah I mean England have an amazing embarrassment of riches in, in the T20 in the short form uh, which, which, is, which is great to see I suppose the other team my three kind of favourites for the T20 a year out is, is obviously Australia England and, and India they're the three obvious ones, I suppose. But with that, their combination of amazing batsmen and and pace bowlers, and the Indian pace bowlers actually haven't really featured in this Bangladesh series, partly because the likes of Bumrah and, and Mohammed Shami haven't played. But it, an amazing performance by Deepak Chah to get six for seven, the world record T20 international bowling figures. But he's not one of high pace, in fact. He's more sort of medium, fast, 82 miles an hour, clever bowler, young guy, bowls well at the death for Chennai Super Kings in the IPL. But I wonder if that's an illusion. I wonder if actually he's going to be the type that's going to be really effective in Australia because I don't think he's quite got the pace. I suppose South Africa also will have will have bowlers of, of considerable pace but perhaps haven't quite got the batsman. So emerging at the moment in, in as the form teams in T20 is, is Australia, England and India, suddenly uh, England have got to revert to, to the longer form now. So <laughs> how's that transformation going to work? Well, that's, that's a very good point. Just before we finish on that, uh, Yoz, I also like the idea of the West Indies as well. Don't uh, don't count them out. They have got some fantastic short form 
white ball cricketers and uh, you know they, they, they are going to be one of the teams to beat as well now on to England playing uh, red ball cricket yes yeah, white ball T20 well 11 overs per side on Sunday in Auckland and then in, in Fangarai a couple of days later England begin their preparation to the test series against New Zealand which is a two match series starts on uh, Thursday week in uh, Mount Monganui uh, first ever test match to be played there. So they, firstly, they've got a two-day game against a New Zealand eleven. Lots of youngsters, uh, former New Zealand under-19 players, and multiplayer two-day match uh, with one side batting you know, for the first day and then the other side batting for the second. You know, in a way, it's a glorified net. The only thing that, or one of the issues is, uh, we, we we made the hundred-mile trek to. Uh, Fangrai north of uh, Auckland today is absolutely lashing down. It was a really heavy rain. It's quite cold as well. And north of New Zealand expected to be warmer than anywhere else, but actually it's just about the coldest place we've been so far. And uh, the weather forecast is a bit mixed for the next few days. So, uh, you know, England have five days of cricket before the Test Series. Um, whether they get a full five days in uh, remains to be seen. The last time, of course, they were here in New Zealand, they had two two-day matches and they were bowled out for 58 in there before lunch you know, <laughs> yeah. on, on, on the first day of the, of the first test match. So uh, one thing is happening this time is that three-day game is going to be a first-class match. It's not gonna, going to be as we had in Hamilton last time. Uh, you know, one side bats one day and the other side bats the other. And, you know, and, you know, batsmen coming back in as well. So you have things like you know, one team finishing the day on something like 315 for 14. Uh, you know, if you're out, you're out. It's a first class match. I think that's good. I, I think Chris Silver, that's something Chris Silver wants. Uh, Ashley Giles as well. And that is what is going to happen here. And I think that's good. Going back to first class cricket to prepare for test match cricket. So, you know, that real sense of, you know, you've got, you've got to make it happen. If you make a mistake, you're out, which is exactly, of course, what you know, what will happen in the, in the test series that follows. But before that, there is going to be, a, you know, effectively a, a glorified net for England. Fongaray, it's, it's a sleepy sort of town, isn't it? I remember uh, years ago going for a, a, a little beach holiday there. The, the New Zealanders have these little sort of shacks on the beach, which they call batches, like little wooden huts, uh, which in England, I suppose, would be seen as beach huts. But in uh, New Zealand, you actually sleep in them as well and, and barbecue on the beach uh, at night, uh, go out and wade out into the shallows and, and pick up some cockles and you know, a few shellfish and things like that. That's the kind of thing that goes on there. Uh, give us a bit of a, a sense of, of where you are. Well, uh, we went out to try and find a restaurant this evening, uh, somewhere to eat, and it's it's fair to say there weren't that many people around on the streets on a, on a Monday evening. It's a, a very quiet spot, a hundred miles uh, north of Auckland. There was one restaurant that looked actually quite uh, tempting, but it was it said closed on Mondays and, and closed on Mondays throughout the winter. Well, it isn't the winter, it's the summer, but it was still closed on a Monday. Um, not rich pickings in terms of, uh, you know, eating places and not that lively a, a town centre, I think it's fair to say, in, in <laughs> Fangarai. Um, I, I that's the, the, the best way of putting it. A bit, a bit of a contrast actually coming from Auckland, which is the biggest and most bustling city in, in New Zealand. Quite a I think it's fair to say a sleepy town. It's a very, very beautiful part of the world. And uh, you go further north, you get to the, the Bay of Islands, which I haven't been to yet, but everyone who's been there says it's absolutely sensational, absolutely stunning place to go. Yeah, I, I mean, you, I'm very envious. I love New Zealand. I think it's the most 
extraordinarily diverse and varied country and, and just so beautiful wherever you go. So uh, enjoy it, lap it up, and I hope you get a bit of time to explore the, the sleepiness of the northern New Zealand and really in, in, actually revel in it because it's not, like, it's not going to be like that when you come home. <laughs> No, absolutely not. Back to winter when we get back. It has actually been a very intense uh, 10 days or so. England have been here, there and everywhere. And obviously, it's mainly been the white ball specials, but a few of them have, have stayed on. Um, Sam Curran, for example, uh, Saki Mahmood, Parkinson, the young leg spinner, you know, they're joining up with the, the Test match players as well. And Johnny Bairstow. Uh, we don't quite know what's going to happen there. We think that Joe Denley is going to be fit for the second match which means that you know he will play in the test match but you know Bairstow is sort of in a wait and see capacity here at the moment um you know he's happy to stay on after the t20 series uh, is he going to come home at the end of this week that remains to be seen Now, the second part of this podcast, as I said today, is going to look at the whole issue of minorities and how they can get better engaged with English cricket. And I have uh, two guests with me here today. Now, I'm going to get you to actually introduce yourselves because you can explain exactly who you are. So, Tasneem? My name's Tasneem Samar Khan. Um, I am a human rights lawyer and a cricket journalist, and I wrote a piece recently in The Cricketer about engaging minorities. And my name is Santoki Nagalendra freelance journalist mainly football but I've also written about cricket and I've also got uh, I've graduated in post-colonial studies and you have an interesting background because you have so you've got sort of half Caribbean yep. and half, half Asian yep half Caribbean my mother from Guyana and my father who was born in Malaysia but has origins in India so I've got an uh, unusual dynamic to say and so have you in a way uh, Tasneem Summer? What a, what a great name. Tasneem Summer. What, yep. what, what's the origin of that? Uh, so my parents are mixed religious backgrounds. I've got a Jewish parent and a Muslim parent, and they wanted a little bit of, of both things in my first name, so they hyphenated it and made it really difficult for me at airports. And, wh- and what's your interest in cricket? What's um, your background in that? Basically, ever ever since I was born. I, it was not too long before Pakistan's 1992 World Cup win, and my family are mostly from Pakistan. So that was just what I grew up watching, and, and pretty soon after, I started playing, and, and then I just spiralled from there. It's one of those things you can't get rid of, isn't it? Now, now, you've written a piece, as you mentioned, in The Cricketer, Engaging minority groups becoming a major issue English cricket can no longer ignore. I mean, it's a, it's a, a fairly common subject. We've heard a fair bit about it. But you picked on, in particular, the appearance of Tom Harrison, Colin Graves and others in front of the Department of Digital Media and Sport, uh, the Select Committee, the other day. And you felt, in a way, that the, the issue of minorities was only touched on and that there weren't minorities in particular incorporated in the argument. That's right. Um, I think cricket, you know, has always had this conversation. It's not the first time that we've thought of it. I've thought about it a lot, playing club cricket, covering cricket, doing different things. But it became relevant again when um, the select committee met. The committee itself was about the future of English cricket. So to me, it became a focus group on the 100 more than anything else. And while that is an aspect, it's not the only aspect. One thing that really concerned me, and we had that conversation when Jofra became eligible for, for the England side, 
is that we simply have a massive gulf in the amount of Afro-Caribbean individuals in the country that watch cricket or in, are involved with cricket on some level and then the representation that we see coming through at the elite level it's really fallen visibly in my lifetime and I'm sure much more so in, in other people's and then it's the same issue with um, British Asians they make up approximately one third of club cricket individuals and while we have so 30 seen... odd th- I think it's 35 percent isn't it yes that's of right participation is South Asian that's right that's exactly right and uh, while that's fantastic we often see that becoming a bit of a ceiling and we have some very exemplary cricketers in the England side from that background who have played some fantastic cricket that we've all enjoyed but the question becomes why don't we see more people from there filtering up both to the England side and then also in the industry at large um, with the exception of Isha Guha and you know a couple of other notable individuals, we don't see them in cricket journalism or media or administration either. So that was really where I was coming from. And in a way, Santoki, I suppose you have a, a similar take on it. And uh, Tasneem there mentioned about the, the Caribbean essence as well as the South Asian element, that Jofra Archer is a representation of a, a, a race which mm. is very much less involved at the higher level of the game, or in fact any level of the game now, Mm. than it was. Have you noticed that, and can you put your finger on why? Yeah, I think there's obviously a big disconnect in this country with the Afro-Caribbean population in terms of their parents who came from the Caribbean were obviously massive cricket fans, but it hasn't trickled down towards them. And you've got to look at why has there been a disconnect. It could be, well, I think the main reason is schools. if If you go to school in inner London... I went to school in a state school in London. I never played cricket once, from year 7 to year 11. So this was in Morden, was it? That was in South London, Tintin. So, yeah, yeah, I never played cricket once. And so if you're not playing cricket and you're not encouraged to... Your parents can't take you to a club after school or have the resources to ensure that you're playing it, there's obviously going to be a massive gap. And you link back to Joffa Archer as well. When Joffa Archer um, initially made the England squad, there was the whole about him not fitting into the culture of the team. And then that links to kind of... Afro, he was Afro-Caribbean, and it links to the whole idea of if he's not seen as fitting into the culture of the team, does that mean that the culture excludes minorities from what they see as being the right type of culture? It does seem as if there's been a loss of engagement from that Caribbean community... Uh, I know that Daniel Bell Drummond has tried to resurrect it in Beckenham yes. and, and done a few little initiatives, which is a great effort. Uh, probably he lacks support and, you know, the wider community really helping him in that area. But, but with the South Asians, uh, Tasneem, you know, often it's said, and I'm, I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate here, that, mm. yes, OK, we don't engage the... Uh, the South Asians at the highest levels of the game, in coaching, in uh, sort of senior administration, in running clubs, obviously in the professional game, playing professional cricket at county level. But playing devil's advocate, is that partly their lack of engagement as much as it is our lack of encouragement? I think some aspect of it very much could be. Uh, on the players' side, when we do have 35% South Asians, then I think it's, it's evidence that people are engaging. So 
the fact that they're not coming up might be something else, might be something more. And it's not just down to, to throwing around words like racism. They are not the only reasons. There are very real socioeconomic reasons that people are not able to transfer a recreational game into um, a profession. That's not something that they would want to do or be able to pursue because, as we all know, cricket takes an awful lot of resources. Whether those come from your parents or yourself, um, it's, it's very difficult. It's not easy. Elite sport never is. But I think on the side of uh, professionals and in other aspects of the game some of it will be in terms of how much effort are the minorities making themselves it's obviously not a blanket for everybody it never is to say that that one person doesn't doesn't mean that they all do not or they all don't uh, or they all fail to integrate or make efforts I think it's a very difficult question and I think that there are easier things to point to like socioeconomics, like the loss of cricket from schools, like the concentration of certain minorities in different areas. For instance, I grew up in a very different place from Santoki. Um, I grew up in quite rural Essex. Um, I was privately educated. I was, at least in my year group, I don't know about, about the other year groups, but I was the only Pakistani background girl there. And in fact, maybe in a year group of 100 people, there were three minorities I would guess and and that's that's one of the other reasons is that I got to play cricket because I was a, a private school Daniel Bell Drummond got to play cricket because he gained a scholarship for a private school Joffrey Archer got to play cricket Chris Jordan got to play cricket for all of those very same reasons and I think there's social reasons that we probably need to think about like the loss of spaces in which people can play cricket is it just the loss of uh, space, loss of opportunity. Is it also the parental thing? You know, preferring their kids when they get. I mean, there, there does seem to be what I've found a, a loss of the the Asian community at the sort of higher levels of the game in uh, sort of eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Yes. They're very good at sixteen, seventeen, and then eighteen. You know, their parents are like, "You must get to university. I want you to be a doctor." Is that still the case? It is sometimes. That's very much changed since when I was a kid. And, and the newer generations, I think that they have a different approach to schooling and education than they did 20-odd years ago. And a big part of that is immigration. When you are a first or second generation immigrant and you have used up a majority of your resources to come to this country and set up a new life, you simply are worried about different things. You are hoping that your children in the next generation will find roots here, but focus on making a life for themselves here. Part of that is it is difficult to see something like professional sports where you do have to be the an exception to, to reach the standard. So almost of too much risk in yeah. a way yes, associated exactly. with sport whereas you go and do your medical degree or yep. your natural sciences or whatever that's going to lead to something else or your accountancy. Absolutely. Exactly that. So I think it comes back to that socioeconomic argument and, and that risk calculation. For a lot of people, they're just looking for their children to be in a place where where they're taken care of, they're safe, they're not struggling. And most people don't see sport in that way. Things have changed because that wave of immigration where Asians started to, to move into the UK um, post-independence of India and India breaking up, it's really, we're looking at people being third, fourth and fifth generation immigrants now, which is why things are changing. And I think a lot of it has to do with the changing scope of our society as well. We now understand far better than we did 20 years ago that in order for children to be happy and healthy in 
all sorts of ways. Maybe physical activity is a good outlet. It is positive for your mental health. So I think society in general is changing. And, and some of those um, economic resources that you require to be able to do something like cricket, just look at that as a comparison to football. You need, you need a ball. That's it. What are they like? Twenty pounds. Whereas a kit bag mm. is 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 very difficult, and it requires parents who have the time to to take you. Actually, it's funny because I, I I had uh, I've got three kids who play mm. cricket mm. and got some old cricket helmets that they now have grown out of, and I took some down to a charity shop the other day, thinking you know some person mm. might be quite happy to to get these cheap helmets five quid instead of. 35 or 40 quid or something and the the charity shop said to me no we can't take the helmets because once they've been used they're Mm. not safe right so they're not insured to to be able to sell them on in case you know they're cracked or something so uh, there's all sorts of issues with second-hand gear in cricket which doesn't help now tasneem was talking earlier about uh, socioeconomic factors which might prevent uh, asians or, or west indians caribbean people from from coming to cricket You've got a story about the Oval and some of your Muslim friends? Yeah, so the Oval, um, obviously I grew up in Tutin, which is literally four or five tube stops away from the Oval. Growing up, me and my friends, we would never go to what shall we, um, or the Oval, but we'd be massive fans of cricket. Now, when I did manage to go to a Surrey T20 game about two years ago, they have they had a thing which was quite popular where anyone who's finished their cups of beer, they would pile them up and make a massive beer snake. Now, this is great. It's great fun for the crowd there. But then looking at it from a community perspective, alcohol going around, spilling on people. If you're a Muslim person and you're seeing this, you're never going to go back to watch a game for obvious reasons. Um, so it's that kind of thing, which might seem like a small thing to the club, but that's, uh, that's excluding a whole community. And Tutim, which I, which I mentioned earlier, is a, there's a massive Muslim community who are all cricket mad. So... Initially, having something like that and promoting T20 cricket at Surrey, which is the most accessible form because you're more likely to attract people to a Surrey T20 game than, say, a four-day county cricket game. Um, by having that there and excluding them, you're blocking out a massive fan base, potential fan base. And the whole, the whole um, notion that Surrey have around the T20s is come for after-work drinks, that kind of culture which obviously gets them massive fans, but if you're looking to engage in the diversity of the community around the area, then you have to think about these type of things if you do want to attract that crowd. So where does the the community in Tooting, the Muslim community in Tooting, where do they get their cricketing kicks from? So I would most of it is um, off TV. So, for instance, mm. I've got a lot of Bangladeshi friends. They're massively excited for the Bangladeshi-India series, which is going on at the moment. If you ask them about England playing New Zealand, I'm pretty sure most of them wouldn't have the foggiest about who was what what the schedule was what type of games they were playing so it's their whole their whole connection to cricket is through the tv screen rather than live atmosphere unless it is india or bangladesh playing like in their world cup so so would 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 the hundred would that solve the problem because i mean one of the areas that that the ecb have looked at with the hundred is to try and create a new environment which would attract a new audience which isn't so sort of alcohol laden but also trying to get more of those Bangladeshi sort of players that you're talking about to lure those communities in. Yeah, I, so far, so a lot of my friends have been massively excited about the 100, purely because the whole routine about it, the draft, the big glamorous players, um, the big fees, the auctions, it reminds them of the IPL. So it's kind of hitting a familiar funk for them. So by seeing something that reminds them of 
big, quick, big, t- glamorous cricket because I know it's a lot of Asians. They tend to like the player. The player comes first above the team. So Bangladeshis, they idolise Shakib Hassan, for instance. So something like the hundred, it reminds them of what they're used to, the IPL. And mm. by having by naming the, by having a local franchise, so you've got the oval, the oval side, and you're kind of you're taking away the county aspect of it. So it's not sorry, but then for someone who's who doesn't have that link to a county. I don't think it's going to make a massive difference. So they're more likely if they find out, say, Shakib's playing for a certain franchise, they're more likely to make that effort. You can't make you can't mention Shakib. Yeah, yeah, yeah not anymore. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a that's a that's a oh, sad yeah. story. Actually, Sore yeah. spot, definitely. Which is which is another an, another story for another day. Yeah. But uh, I know I take your point. So Tasneem, do you although, although you've been quite critical of certain aspects of the hundred, can you see that? part of it being successful? I I definitely think it's going to make a difference because an image change works for a lot of different things. So I do think that the draft is going to attract people just because of the way that most franchises are set up, with the exception of the T20, because the T20 blast is connected to our county game. Everybody else has a draft system. uh, Pakistan actually had, um, for the PSL, they they broadcast um, the pick order for the teams just today and believe it or not cricket fans watched that it's just a live stream saying who gets to pick first there are no you know you're not going to see Jaffa Archer you're not going to see Steve Smith you're not going to see Andre Russell and people still tune in to watch that so I think that familiarity is one thing and I think picking people who are amongst the best in the world having Andre Russell is a massive massive pull for all of us it doesn't matter if you're from the Caribbean or not that's it's, it's Andre Russell who doesn't love Andre Russell so for for all the the criticisms that people have for it it's just coming into people's consciousness and that probably will do a lot in and of itself I think with the drinking point that you guys were just discussing it's important for inclusion not just for minorities or people who don't drink or Muslims there are so many women who are kept out of the game mm. and kept out of live attendance of the game because Sometimes alcohol comes with consequences. Sometimes it makes people fail to modulate their behavior. Sometimes people behave in in a way which means that the rest of us don't necessarily want to be around them. There are fights that break out. There are harassment issues that come up. I know so many young women who are put off live sports because of the drinking aspect. And while there is nothing wrong with people drinking and enjoying a drink or two, I think having that idea where you have family-friendly areas will will feel safer for some people to go to and they might be encouraged and think well you know I'm not going to have somebody shout abuse at me or get in my face or whatever the range of things that people experience and maybe hopefully make them want to attend. So I'm going to put you on the spot then give me a couple of things each that you think we could do going forwards maybe next summer to help this situation? Number one is being able to see people who look like you and hear people that look like you. And that's not something as simplistic as colour, but it means holistically. Are these people who are outside of the traditional sphere of cricket? So for me, I look up to somebody like Isha Gu, who is an amazing broadcaster, and of course she was an amazing cricketer for England as well. But being able to have an example like that, it's only just the one, which is a problem, and Ebony as well, but you know, it's only a couple of people, which means 
means it's not quite enough. When you see that other people who come from similar communities that you come from are being taken seriously within the sport and are being given a voice, it will give other people confidence and encourage them into the sport. If people were to see, you know, people who look like them and, and feel un they, that they understand that the communities that they come from in England shirts, at club cricket, um, entering administrative pathways, then they simply think, I could do it too. So inclusion on every single level. The other thing that I would say is concentrated projects to reach people in their communities, not to expect them to come to us, but to go to them, let them know what the sport is about, that it's one of the most positive sports out there that has a meeting of so many different people. And this is what we can all do together. Cricket has a little bit of an image problem. And I mean this in, in not just to do with race, just broadly, people think of cricket as boring. I once had a, a meeting um, with a, for a cricket organisation at the Groucho Club in London and the young waitresses and hostesses who were about my age asked me, why do you like this? This is a really boring sport. It's something that my granddad played and it's all about the tees, isn't it? And as much as we do love cricket tees, that's not what cricket is about. It has become one of the most athletic sports that is out there. It has developed so much in the last 20 to 30 years and we need to together change the image of the sport. So sell the message better. Sell the really. message better, yeah. absolutely. What about you, Santa? Yeah, no, I agree with what Tass said and also, yeah, just more community engagement. So the 100 is this brainchild which is meant to attract different aspects of society to come to watch it. You've you've got to have players in the build-up to it. Have a player, say, for instance, Jason Roy, go to local primary schools, come in his colourful kit, mm. franchise kit. Kids will love that visually. Colourful colorful kit, he's come in, he's a big star. Um, have have net sessions, training sessions, and also I think it's not done enough complimentary tickets given to schools. Oh, yeah. You see in India, West Back Indies down, as well, yeah. you see school kids, a whole stand full of school kids, have that for the 100. You won't make money from the ticket sales, but you'll engage them long-term because they'll take memories which will, they'll, which will stay with them and it will also encourage them to play cricket when they when they leave the match. And so something like that, just small things to engage the community can have a massive impact. Listen, thanks for giving you uh, so much uh, of your time and thought. Very valuable. We'll put these straight to the ECB. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.